Welcome to Being Human. This week I have not one, but two guests, uh, Ifosa Ajomo and Karen Dillon, uh, co-authors of The Prosperity Paradox with Clayton Christensen. Uh, to both of you, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having us. Thank you, Richard. It's an honor to be here. Uh, and you're both looking great. We just before we came on air, there was uh, <laughs> some consternation about uh, the video element of this, but no, you're looking great. So really looking forward to it. All right, so let's start with with the book. Uh, and I read the book over the weekend. Fantastic. Uh, definitely gave me some new insights on ways to think about innovation, how to think about uh, development uh, in in countries that are. Uh, seeking to increase their prosperity. So yeah, wonderful, wonderful contribution, I think, to the conversation. Should we, should we start at the start in terms of the genesis of, of this book? Afosa, why don't you take yeah. that? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I'll, I'll talk a little bit about um, where, how, how, how I got here, and then maybe Karen can, can also uh, chime in on how she got involved in the project. Um, uh, I am originally from Nigeria, um, came to the U.S. Uh, almost 20 years ago now and came for college. And when I left, I had no intentions of ever going back. And so came to America, I studied engineering, got a job, and life was good. Uh, bought a house, bought a car, everything was going well. And then I started reading uh, books on development, economics, poverty, and it really struck me like nothing had ever struck me before. And it wasn't until the third book that I read about this 10-year-old girl, uh, Amarich, who had to wake up every morning at uh, 3 a.m. to fetch firewood uh, to sell and essentially take care of her family. And I started thinking about what I was doing when I was 10, and it certainly wasn't that. And I decided that uh, I wanted to figure out how to solve the, the problem of, you know, Amarich. Like, the, that didn't need to exist in the world. And so one thing led to another, I started a nonprofit organization, and we did certain things in poor communities in Nigeria, but it wasn't enough. Um, and I can, I can talk about that in detail later, but that led me to Harvard Business School, where I, um, I got the opportunity to meet Professor Clay Christensen. Um, I just thought that after years running this organization, I needed uh, something more. I needed to understand the relationship between business and and uh, economic prosperity. So I met Professor Christensen, I took his course, and uh, after I graduated, I had the opportunity to work with him on the prosperity paradox. And it's really a book that has changed how I think about uh, how we can create economic prosperity in many uh, regions in, in the world. And so that's sort of a quick Cliff Notes version of how I got from, you know, coming to Nigeria with no intentions of ever going back or even thinking about these things to how I'm now here. And this is sort of what I spend a lot of my days on. So, Wow. Okay. That's that's a long way from that. So were you originally aspiring to be an engineer? And Yeah, I was. Um, In fact, I did. I studied engineering. I was working for a tech company based out of Austin, Texas. I was was with them for about eight years. And and things were going well. In fact, for um, from 2000, when I came to 2008, I did not step foot in Nigeria. Like I was in the U.S. I absorbed the American dream. And I tell people I, uh, I bought a house and I bought a car 
and the car was an SUV. So, you know, Americans love those big cars. <laughs> and, and it wasn't until I really started reading and grappling with these issues that I decided uh, I needed to reorient my life around finding solutions to these problems. Um, and that's when I came to, to, to Harvard, met Professor Christensen, and we began thinking about these things. So, And so where, and where do you spend most of your time now? Where... Uh, I'm in Boston, uh, based in, in Boston, uh, but I travel a ton. Uh, the book came out a couple months ago, and so we are really just traveling a lot, trying to, what I say is preach the, the prosperity paradox gospel, uh, not to be mistaken for the prosperity gospel. This is a prosperity paradox. <laughs> okay. And so that takes you back to Nigeria a lot, or? Uh, it will. Um, so I guess one of the things I, I, I sort of um, I, I, didn't, uh, I didn't go into detail on is uh, when I read about that 10-year-old girl, girl, I started an organization called Poverty Stops Here. And the organization was designed to uh, build wells, provide microloans, and, and invest in some education in poor communities in, in Nigeria. And so from 2008 till about 2015, I went to Nigeria virtually every year. Uh, but I learned something really huge in uh, starting and running Poverty Stops here. Uh, we would build a well in a community, and it was amazing. and we would, we would celebrate it. But a few months later, the well would break down. And I really struggled with that. So after building like five wells and the same thing pretty much happened, I thought there has to be a different way. There has to be something we can do differently. Um, and that's really what triggered um, the need for more education and really wanting to go back to school to find how business uh, could really help solve some of these uh, seemingly intractable, intractable issues. Um, and we write about that experience in the book um, and define that strategy in a particular way. So. Right. And but, well, maybe that could be a hook for later as to, you know, what, what are your conclusions of, of that inquiry? But turning to you, Karen, what, what drew you into this, into this project? Well, I have been um, in the same circle as a professor for a few years because I've written um, a couple of books before with Clayton Christensen. And so he and I were, were sort of arm's length colleagues um, at, with the Christensen Institute and with my work with Clay. And the two, I think two years ago, two springs ago, um, my daughter, who at the time was uh, 16 and in high school, was taking a global leadership class and she needed to bring in a speaker um, for her class and every student had to bring in a speaker. And uh, I remember her classmates had very impressive sounding people, connections at the World Bank and somebody calling in from the World Economic Forum. And, uh, you know, we, we, we humbly didn't have those connections. So I tried to think, what could I, what could I do to help her get a good speaker in? And I only vaguely knew the research that Afosa was working on. I knew it was interesting. I knew that he is the kind of personality that he is. And so I just asked him, would he be willing to go into my daughter's class and talk about the work? Knowing it might be a big leap from what a think tank like the Christensen Institute um, and Nafosa are, are thinking about and talking about and high school 16-year-olds. Uh, um, but he said yes, happily. I connected him with my daughter, and then I forgot about it, really sort of stepped out of it. 
Um, but the night that she came home from that day where he had appeared in class, she was so bubbly and enthusiastic and talking about what had happened in class that day. And basically his ideas had ignited that class of 16 year olds. Uh, and it just, it just ignited my curiosity as well. If, so, if whatever he said, which I knew was theory based and came from a sort of academic perspective could be so exciting to a group of 16 year olds. I was just really interested in, uh, in, in getting involved and finding out more. So long story short, because I had been a writing partner for Clay several times before, I, I asked if I could help in any way. And, and here we are now as co-authors two years later down the line. So, so what did you say to those kids, if I say that's, that sounds impressive. <laughs> oh my, I think uh, one of the things I remember saying was uh, um, I tried to remind people that uh, you know, many prosperous countries today, including the United States, many countries in Europe, uh, Japan, and so on, uh, they didn't start off that way. Um, you know, a few hundred years ago, we were all really impoverished. And if you looked at the demographics of these countries back then, uh, they were worse than many of the poorest countries we have today. Uh, but they, they did prosper and they did achieve prosperity. Um, and it's that process of going from poverty to prosperity that we had to uh, uncover. Uh, it, didn't, it didn't do anyone much good if we compared uh, the state of infrastructures and institutions in the U.S. today, in, 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 in the United Kingdom uh, today, with you know, the state of institutions and infrastructures in Nigeria, in Ghana, in Bangladesh. And I said... What, what's, what's, what's fascinating is let's remember where we've come from. And so I shared some interesting stats and I asked the class, hey guys, what country is this? And uh, they were terrible stats, like, you know, life expectancy, 46 years, uh, you know, 10% of people go to secondary school and, uh, you know, the average household spends over 50% of their income on food. And, and of course, you know, many said, you know, Somalia, uh, Sudan, and, you know, really poor countries. And I said, uh, this is the United States of America. And you could have seen their faces, right? They were all like, no way. And I, I explained, well, it's not America today. It's, you know, a while back. And, and so I think that framing is really important. Uh, and what it did for me uh, is it gave me hope that many countries that are struggling today can become prosperous. It's incredibly difficult, it's a tough road, but there is a process that, that, that can enable them to achieve prosperity. So that's probably one of the things I said that. That got, was definitely because that's what we talked about. And the number of crazy number of time zones America had at the time it really was a train wreck. It really was. Uh, and we forget, we forget because it's so much later, but she was really wild by that and what you went on to talk about and your story about the wells. Yeah. Okay, right. Okay, so maybe that brings us to the to the main thesis then. So what is this process for countries to achieve prosperity? Yeah, um, let me, I'll start by explaining sort of why we even titled it The Prosperity Paradox and what that, what that means. That's chapter one in the book. So when I walked into that poor village for the first time, um, I was struck by the poverty, right? And poverty always shows itself as a lack of resources. Now, in that circumstance, I was struck by the lack of water in that community, the lack of uh, education, 
And so my reaction was to provide those resources. And so I came back to the U.S. after my vacation and I raised some funds and we decided to build a well in the, in the community. And we call that a push strategy of development. You know, I went with all good intentions. Um, I really wanted to help and provide the, the resource that these folks lacked. And I, I did that. But as, as I explained in the book and, and, and as um, I, I, I experienced, the, the, <clears throat> excuse me, the well broke down. After about three or six months, got a call, the well was broken and got the same call for about five, five wells that we built. And that's a very sort of, um, that, that experience is really a microcosm of the bigger development industry is we see a need with poverty and push resources, well-meaning, well-intentioned, uh, but that doesn't really get at the root cause and it doesn't create a sort of permanence and sustainability. And a different uh, strategy uh, that we recommend is really taking a step back and thinking about how um, innovations uh, that create new markets, but not just any new markets, but new markets that make products and services simple and affordable for as many people in the society as possible, is thinking about how that is really at the core of economic development and prosperity in many countries. Uh, because that has the ability to pull in many of the things uh, that society's needs, and it pulls it in in a way that's really more sustainable uh, than good intentions uh, pushing things in. And we have a plethora of examples and case studies that we give in the book that really show you the connection between those types of innovations and many of the other resources that societies uh, need. Right. Okay. Um, <laughs> And, and I love some of the examples, by the way, and maybe we can get into them. But um, I'm just trying to think. So, what's the what does that what does that practically mean then? I mean, in in terms of you now thinking as somebody who has an interest in development in in these countries, what what does it practically mean for you in terms of you taking action? I suppose now as a as a as a writer and a thinker, or as an, as an academic. Yeah, if, if, if I could, um, well, I mean, as, as, as a writer, a thinker, um, I think the, the first thing is um, spread the spread of these ideas. Uh, I think when I, when I started reading about development, and certainly when I left Nigeria, I saw the problem as um, sort of a big macro structural issue that was almost unfixable unless we had a change in virtually everything, a change in government, a change in laws, institutions, uh, in culture. I mean, everything had to change. And when you wake up every day with this thinking that everything has to change, um, you, you look at the situation and you're, you're hopeless because it's just almost impossible. But with the research we've done for the book, I now see the role that innovation and the entrepreneur play in creating economic prosperity. Um, and what's particularly interesting is uh, the circumstance in which these innovations thrive are not always welcoming. 
Uh, they're not circumstances where, you know, the rule of law and infrastructure, all those things work, right? Um, and so I think just evangelizing that uh, and just explaining the process by which development happens is, is critical. Um, and I think it all boils down to, you know, chapter two of the book where we, we titled Not All Innovation is Created Equal. Um, and I think understanding that there are different types of innovations and no one is bad in and of itself. It's just that they have different impacts on the economy. Uh, that's critical for people to understand. Right. So first it's champion the entrepreneur. And that's interesting in itself, right? Because even if I hear the word international development, immediately the connection in my mind are governments, yeah. big charities. I'm never thinking entrepreneur, right? Exactly. Not linked. And yet my own experience, because I lived in, in Moshi in Tanzania for when I was a kid, when I was 18. And one of the things that struck me there, if I looked at um, what, was what was happening in this town, um, the politicians rolled in in big Mercedes and, and, and nobody had a good word to say about the, 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 the politicians. And this was you know, a very impoverished town. And so the, the only word you ever heard associated with politicians was, cor was corruption. Um, now, this is an entirely unfair anecdote, but the big story about the Christians in the town were, don't ever ask for a lift off the Christians because they will never stop. Right? <laughs> <laughs> now, I'm sure there were many good-hearted Christians in the town. But what struck me was the, um, the Tusker beer lorries coming rolling through. And I, and I looked at that and I thought, who is, do, you know, as, a, as an 18-year-old, who is doing most for this, the development of this community here? Well, it looks like the beer company's doing quite a lot. I mean, there's drivers here. They, presumably they've got a big interest in these roads getting out to the small shops where they were selling the beer. And, and so it's interesting reading this book now correlates with that insight I had, you know, when I was 18 years old. You're right. You saw it. You sort of saw it in, in your own eyes in, in real time. It's uh, the idea is not that business can take over and do everything that government should do and that we should forget about the, the public version of it. It just should all be private. It is just understanding how important business can be, what a catalyst business can be. And then specifically what we call the market creating innovations, which take this idea and then scale it so that it has the potential. It's not just uh, a small market stall or you know something that creates one or two jobs. It's something that relatively quickly has the ability to create a lot of jobs, uh, local jobs, and has the ability to, what Afosa said, pull in infrastructure and institutions. All the things that would stop you from thinking about starting a business can actually be ignited by the right kind of uh, innovation and entrepreneur at the right time in the right place. Right. And there were a couple of stories I loved. There's the, the, the insurance story and then the noodle story. Um, I, oh, maybe I should leave it to you. What, 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 what's your favorite story from the book in terms of an example of this kind of entrepreneurial activity? Yeah, Karen, how about you? you? Well, I'll tell the insurance one because that's my favorite one. And the folks that can tell the noodle one because maybe that might be his favorite. We, we love them all. But uh, the insurance example is one that I think really illustrates what we're talking about. It's sort of really, really clearly. There is a company called MicroInsure, which is actually a UK-based company, but uh, only UK-based because the guy who founded it was in the insurance industry in the UK initially. But when he was on uh, a, a vacation slash service trip to a part of Africa, um, he just became sort of painfully aware of how quickly what he called the shoots and ladders of life could 
could turn one family's existence into, you know, to a desperate situation. Um, he stayed with the family where the mother and child had been forced to return from the big city where they were both doing quite well. Um, she was a teacher, I think, and the son was in school and her husband was, from memory, a security guard, but they had, they had good jobs um, because her husband had gotten sick. He'd gotten HIV and then eventually AIDS and died of AIDS. And, and in their attempt to pay for whatever care they could for him, um, they bankrupted themselves. And so desperate, they returned back to their village and they just lived a life of, of extreme poverty. And it occurred to him having you know, sat in his office in London and looked at the charts where natural disasters and bad things happen versus where insurance is offered. Um, it was a complete mismatch and it just seemed wrong that we can't find some way, somehow, some way to offer insurance of some sort to people who most desperately need it. Uh, so what he did would defy any actuarial table that we know, but has turned out to be an incredible success. He created this company called MicroInsure, where through trial and error, he's figured out in various countries in Africa and in India um, how to create microinsurance um, payments and coverage that can make a life-changing difference for the people who, who get it. Now, we think of insurance as a big, fancy policy. You sign it, you pay premiums, you, you get coverage, you hope you never need it, but you know we grouse about how much it costs, but it's there for peace of mind. What he did was completely change the business model of what it is he's actually offering, um, and it's been extremely successful. He found a way to get mobile phone companies in the area to offer as a kind of freebie for when you sign up for extra minutes, buy extra mobile minutes, we'll cover you for months, some kind of basic insurance. Um, so people didn't have to put out money at all to get the experience of being covered by some kind of basic insurance. And here's a really shocking and cool part about business model innovation. Uh, he eventually realized that all of the traditional ways that we in Western countries would think about insurance, again, through actuarial tables, is, next of kin and assessing risk and your age and all of that stuff was almost impossible to get reliably in the countries he was starting to do business in. So eventually he took the big leap of faith and all that he knows about his customers is their mobile phone number. We will do business with you through this mobile phone number. So we know you have a relationship with the mobile phone company. We know we can get money to and from your account there. Uh, we're not going to ask you your age. We're not going to assess your risk. We're just going to figure out a way to have a business relationship based on that. And in our uh, in Western terms, they're very small dollar amounts, $50 of coverage or something like that. But that kind of coverage can make an enormous difference to somebody being able to actually get private health care in a, a dire situation or get back on their feet after some kind of a disaster. He eventually upsells them. They get, they get a little bit better coverage. Or they have to buy more minutes. It's not free insurance. But, but the initial entry into the market is through the mobile phone companies. And he's been, he's been so successful. Millions and millions of people. It was, it was more successful than he had even anticipated. He said they were plugging in when they had so many people sign up for a particular offer for $50 in exchange for if you were in the hospital for two days, which is a game-changing amount for people. Um, they were plugging in USBs and trying to hold on, hold on by a thread with their technology because they had so many people sign up for this product. He's demonstrated, this is what we, as a classic market creating innovation. There wasn't a market there. You couldn't see customers. You could just see unfortunate people. Now he's got tens of millions of customers who buy a different version of insurance, but a life-changing amount of insurance or get it free in their, in their deal with the mobile phone company. And he's created a market. Mm. And, and I thought that distinction in the book you make about the, the consum consumption economy and then the non-consumption opportunity. And he was looking not at how can I get more from these consumers? It's 
where where's the opportunity of non-consumption right now? It's uncomfortable for people because we're used to uh, making business decisions um, um, for, by looking at who, ex- who are the existing customers. How can we get 10% more of them or how can we get um, 10% more money from them? What he saw when he was doing that side-by-side actuarial table and the contrast between who got insurance and where natural disasters were, he saw non-consumption, people who, who were not buying or using any product or service because there wasn't one that was affordable and accessible to them. But the need was enormous. So in identifying that opportunity, the non-consumption opportunity, he really identified a market and he's demonstrated it really clearly. Yeah. And, and we, again, that's another thing we don't, we don't think, you know, it's not, we, we tend not to think about, right? Is that the size of the non-consumption opportunity? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, so you want to tell the noodle story? Yeah, I was going to say, should we talk noodles? I love that one, how far it goes, like the, the, the full extent of what that creates. Who knew, who knew a pack of instant noodles could have this kind of impact? Huh? Um, so I think, yeah, uh, to tell the story, I'm going to go back to 1988, because that's when uh, these two brothers, Haresh and Sarjana Swani, began importing instant noodles into Nigeria. Well, at that time, uh, Nigeria was extremely poor, much poorer than it is today. It was under a military regime, and so it wasn't a particularly excellent investment destination because, uh, you know, your stuff could be expropriated. And, um, it wasn't like the, the rule of law. Everything was set up. Uh, there was a deficiency, a huge deficiency in infrastructure, uh, transportation, education, electricity, and so on. Uh, life expectancy was 46 years, uh, which means, you know, we'd all be in our twilight years now. <laughs> uh, and so, so it, wasn't, it wasn't a place where you'd look at it and be like, let's go. Um, and the, the, to top it all off, most Nigerians didn't eat noodles. We thought they were worms at first, right? And so, uh, you, you, you know, you know, you're not trying to introduce a, a product that people are somewhat familiar with because a neighboring country uh, eats it. And, and, and so that barrier wouldn't be high. Everything was uh, difficult. But these guys, instead of looking at all those stats and the, the demographics of Nigerians saying there's no opportunity here, Instead, they looked at it and said, oh, my gosh, there's ample opportunity here. Because if we can introduce this uh, food to this country that's rapidly urbanizing, uh, people are pressed for time, it's going to take two, three minutes to cook. Uh, You add uh, a protein, an inexpensive uh, egg, for instance, and all of a sudden you have a filling and tasty meal. And that's exactly what they did. But in order to do that, um, uh, to sort of keep up with demand, 1995, they decided to build factories in the country. Well, remember I said there was no electricity infrastructure, or at least it wasn't reliable. And so to, to build a factory, you had to build a, uh, an electricity plant. You had to build a water treatment facility, a waste management uh, uh, system. Um, and then they had to distribute the products. So they had to invest in distribution and logistics. And, and, and they invested so much in logistics now that they are now the largest corporate logistics company in Nigeria. Um, and then you, you, you also think about how do we get the product from the warehouse or the truck to uh, someone's home? You got to go through a retail sector. And the retail sector isn't quite as developed uh, as it is uh, in, in the UK, in the US. And so there's not Walmart or grocery stores all over the place. So they also had to invest in a retail sector. 
When you think about all the things that they invested in and pulled into the economy just to get a 20 or so cent pack of noodles from a factory to someone's home, um, it begins to show you the power of market creating innovations because there was no market and then they created a market and and over the last 30 or so years this company alone has invested close to half a billion dollars in nigeria they run 13 uh, manufacturing plants today i already mentioned that they're the largest corporate uh, logistics company in the country with hundreds of trucks and vehicles employing uh, upwards of 8,500 people directly, and their supplier companies and partner companies bump that number up to roughly 50,000 people, right? This is direct employment. So we're not talking about uh, indirect employment and sort of uh, multiplier effects from that. And so you need to see all these things. And oh, by the way, Nigeria, a company where most people thought noodles were worms, now has 16 other players in the noodle market, right? All of a sudden, you know, Nigerians now eat noodles. We're now the, one of the top uh, per capita noodle eating countries in the world, right? There with, you know, Indonesia, South Korea, and so on. What's fascinating about this is um, they saw non-consumption. They saw that they could create a market. And the process they went through in creating that market was similar to the process of market creation that virtually all the entrepreneurs we've studied uh, had to go through. So when we look at what Henry Ford had to do to create the market for automobiles in America, to make the car simple and affordable so many people in America could afford it, you begin to see the similarities and you begin to see all the things that his decision to go that route, all the things it pulled into the economy. And we're, we're really trying to illustrate how powerful that is in our book. We don't you know, say it's easy. We don't say, oh, what's wrong with you? Just go do it. We know it's tough, but it's a strategy that's not employed as much as it can be. Instead, I think with the best of intentions, we are really trying to push a lot of things onto these economies that make sense on paper, but they really have no staying power because we haven't created the market that can absorb them yet. And so that noodle story for me was just fascinating because uh, you know, I grew up eating Indomie noodles, very tasty, and uh, I had no idea how much of an economic development impact that had when I take every bite. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it makes it makes sense. And as you say, the the parallels with what happened in the early uh, industrialization of of the states and the oil barons getting involved in building the railways and so on. I'm sure there's many, many examples. So so that leaves me with the question then, I mean, is there anything for governments to do? Is it is it is it just best that as much as possible, kind of governments just stay out of the way, uh, laissez-faire, uh, and let the entrepreneurs, um, you know, innovate? So, um, there. I mean, look, there there is right, but I think it's important to understand the sequencing of things, right? Um, if we look at how. Um, governments over time have evolved uh, to become bigger and more influential in society, what we'll see is entrepreneurs are the ones that really started, ignited 
the flame is sort of how we say it in the book and governments can fan the fire. Entrepreneurs ignited the fire and governments can fan the flame. And so governments have a role to play. Um, they, uh, they can, you know, make sure that there's a level playing field. They can make sure they don't pick and choose favorites. Uh, but when we begin to think about all the things governments can do, um, they're not really rocket science, right? In other words, um, they're, they're things that every, every person knows they should do. They, you know, they should not steal public funds. Uh, they should make sure the courts are uh, efficient and so on. And so, you know, there's a role for government, but it's a role that is, that is obvious. What we're really trying to do is say there's a missing piece in the puzzle. Uh, and if we put that piece back into the puzzle, then governments are going to be able to do their jobs a lot easier. Because I don't think there's anything profound I can say that a government should do that they wouldn't know or other people haven't said. Uh, it's more so, what is the role of the entrepreneur in economic development, in creating prosperity, and how do we put that back at the center and once we do that, we, we believe that governments, uh, just as we saw in the U.S., in the U.K., in Europe, uh, Japan, South Korea, and so on, governments will sort of get in, in line, and they'll become more efficient. They'll become more responsive to the citizens. But it's incredibly difficult for that to happen without the, the, the entrepreneurs and the innovations. Um, and that's, that's one of the things we found. Right. And you also talk, I mean, one of the things I thought was interesting as well is about the, the, the phases of corruption in mm. a developing, you know, nation and how we can, we can chart that and how that has an impact in terms of uh, economic development. Yeah, I was I was waiting for you to, to mention that, Richard. Uh, <laughs> you know, we, we titled uh, Chapter 9 fairly provocatively, uh, Corruption is Not the Problem, It's a Solution. Now, now I want to be clear that we are not saying corruption is good, corruption is not good. Um, but I think the approach we took in that chapter was not to say the obvious, not to say, look, governments don't steal money, become more efficient and become more productive and your citizens will do well. No, it was, let's lean into corruption, this phenomenon. Let's understand it. Let's understand it better, understand what value it provides to people, and then see how historically we've been able to mitigate it in wealthy societies. And what we came up with uh, was sort of there's a spectrum of corruption. It's not, not, in the same way we have chapter two is not all innovations created equal, but we could also say not all corruption is created equal. <laughs> <laughs> and there's a spectrum. And, and we sort of, you know, sort of named the phase one is sort of where, where we all began. Many, virtually every country where we are really poor and it's uh, overt and unpredictable. And that's, that's where, you know, you're not quite sure how or what, it's going to happen when you invest in certain things and if, you know, you, your, your property could be expropriated or things like that, right? Um, and the phase two is, is covert and, and it's more uh, predictable. Uh, that's where corruption is sort of a, a cost of doing business. Um, and phase three is transparent. It's where, look, if you want to see where the government's getting a lot of its funds, including lobbying dollars, you, 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 you have access to that. 
And the mechanism that gets uh, countries from phase one to phase two is, is, is not by instituting new laws and new uh, systems. It's really this market creation mechanism. And the more you give people an option so that they're not, they don't choose corruption, they don't hire corruption to do uh, the things that they want to do in life, the, the, the better your chances are from going from phase one to phase two. And phase two to phase three, that's really when uh, the laws and the systems uh, begin to take, a, take shape. But what we find is it's, it's a process. It's not an event where one today a country's corrupt, tomorrow it's not. Uh, one of the exciting examples in that chapter we use is uh, China. When you look at China, um, it, is, it is still considered a corrupt country, um, and many Chinese would tell you, uh, at least many who were, who were interviewed in, um, in Howard French's uh, book called uh, China's Second Continent, and he talks to a lot of Chinese in, in Africa, and they would tell you how corrupt China is compared to whatever country they were in, in Africa at the time, Zambia, uh, the, the DRC, and so on. Um, but when you look at how much investments China is pulling in from foreign direct investors, uh, when you look at the growth the Chinese economy has had over the last uh, 40 years, uh, when you look at the productivity gains, uh, you're like, wait, I thought China was corrupt and I thought nothing could happen when you're corrupt. And so, and so it doesn't quite fall because China is in phase two of, of the uh, sort of the corruption spectrum. Uh, and and it's, it's sort of covert and somewhat predictable. Uh, there are now sort of systems in there, and, and they're trying to reduce it more and more, but it's still corrupt versus, you know, countries that are in phase one where it's really unpredictable and, and it's hard for capital to flow, uh, to flow into it. And so we had a, a fun time writing that chapter, and we hope it really gives people a different lens into uh, just understanding corruption and, and, and the purpose. Right, but and help me understand then. So, how is it that this, these these market creating innovations, these entrepreneurs, when they when they start to build their business, yeah. how is it that they have corruption become more predictable? Yes. So, um, so I think what happens is when you when the first thing is understanding what what is the purpose of corruption. I mean, no, nobody really wakes up and just is corrupt for corruption's sake. We're corrupt so that it can help us do something. Um, so it can help us get more money so we can uh, pay our rent or pay our mortgage or, you know, whatever, right? When you create a new market that creates a lot of jobs, what we call local jobs, um, and now you have a substitute for uh, that uh, corruption. You no longer have to be corrupt. Now, when the government sees the value in market creation, they also are now incentivized to uh, to invest in more market creation activities. And so if we look at the evolution of Europe and the introduction of the parliament and court systems, what we find is um, back in the day, the monarchs were all about seizure, right? I would capture you and I would take your land, I would take your property, you know, and so on. But as more markets were beginning to be created um, and as more innovations and entrepreneurs were beginning to flourish, uh, they find, this is a book uh, called, by Robert Bates, who's a Harvard professor, I uh, think in the history, history of economics department. And he writes about prosperity and violence and how 
the government found that uh, they could actually make more money by negotiating with these entrepreneurs and saying, okay, I'll let you do your business if you pay me $10 every month, right? And uh, and that, that, that was how you sort of moved from this phase one unpredictable to phase two, as the markets were beginning to be created and the governments could enrich themselves if they allowed more markets to flourish. And as more markets flourish, people get more jobs, the citizens become more prosperous, and with prosperity comes more empowerment. And over time, you begin to say, you know what, I'm not going to give you $10 a month anymore, I'd give you $8. Well, by the way, I'm going to give you $8 and you have to stop um, sending your stuff this way, and, and you begin to negotiate. And that's really what we have in prosperous countries. It's now more transparent, and there's a negotiation with the citizenry and the government. And it's a good thing, but we just have to understand the process. You don't get there overnight, and you don't get there by pushing these good laws and these good systems. We have to understand the evolutionary process of going from uh, phase one, which is overt and unpredictable, to phase three, where it's more transparent. And so that's sort of how the process flows. Right. So so better to fan the flames of entrepreneurial market-creating activities, which puts a pressure on the state to become, at least in the first place, more, more predictable in terms of its demand for, um, for, for corrupt, for, for payment, I suppose. Uh, rather than sort of trying to preach institutional reform or how you should do this or that? Well, yeah, look, I'm not a, I'm not a, a moral arbiter. I mean, there's, yeah, you know, I mean, we, 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 a lot of research we cite in the book is, is stuff that uh, other guys who, who, who study this stuff have, 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 have found. I mean, upwards of 70 plus percent of institutional reform projects fail. A majority that seem to succeed are mostly form over function. Uh, nothing really changes. Uh, you look at Transparency Inter International, big corruption watchdog, and they are telling us that we're getting more corrupt as the years go by and democracy is beginning to fail more and more people. Um, and so we can preach that gospel and sort of take the moral high ground or we can really lean into these things and try to understand the process and how it works. Um, and man, I look at China, I look at South Korea, the evolution of those economies, and I'm like, you know, you can see them going through the phases. And you even go back far enough. You look at the evolution of the United States of America and how we started off sort of, you know, where did we get the wild, wild west? I mean, we started off there. And as industrialization and capitalism grew, Citizens got more empowered, they began to demand more, and things began to be more predictable, and now we have an economy that's uh, fairly, fairly transparent. And so um, we, look, with good research, I think you have to separate how the world works from how you want the world to work. And I, I want every country to be prosperous and clean and so on. But I think as researchers and as writers, uh, Clay, Karen, and I had to look at the, the evolution and say, hey, this is sort of what we, we saw. Tell us different, right? Tell us, you know, and that's one of the things Clay does really well. It's sort of like, man, tell us why we're wrong so we can go back and improve it so we can make the world a, a better place. So have you made a few enemies amongst the kind of the intelligentsia of the, the, the I don't know, NGOs and, and, and the corporate interventionists, sorry, the government interventionists? 
Well, I, I, I don't know yet. Um, um, the book came out a couple months ago. We, we've made we've made a lot of friends. My guess is the enemies are coming, but you know, I have I have only one. You know, I'm a I'm a not to get too personal, but I'm a Christ follower, and I've been commanded to love my enemies. So uh, if I make any enemies, I'm going to do my best to love them. And I think Karen and I, she, she's the one who has even taught me more of how to, how to you know, how to build allies. <laughs> Wait, we're very clear in this book that this is, we're just, we're trying to help ignite a conversation. We don't yeah. think we have all the answers. We're just thinking right. to some extent, maybe looking at the problem with completely different eyes. You know, we're not steeped in this world. We're looking at it from a different perspective, might offer people um, a helpful catalyst again for making some changes, improving. But we, we, we say at the end of the book, join the conversation. We're, we're in it. We want to help. We want to stand the flames of a great conversation, but we don't think we have all the answers. Help us get better ones. Right. Yeah. And one of the things that, that comes to mind now, as you, just as you're sharing this, is the parallel with business. And that I, I bet if one were to do, in fact, we, it, it's striking in some senses how similar the statistics are. So we know from corporate change projects that we have a, a similar failure rate, actually, you know, sort of 60, 70% of, you know, corporate change initiatives fail, you know, the top down interventions mm. to change the structure of the company or, or, uh, you know, make some specific intervention intervention with the aim of you know, causing X. Uh, and so that's, and, and, and yet we also see that in organizations, what often has the transformative effect is something that's been doing, that's being done on the fringes, often outside of the sort of the main corporate strategy, and that somehow takes a foothold and, and, and gains traction and, and becomes successful for the company. Uh, and so it's striking to me how, how similar those, those worlds are. Uh, and there's something that uh, business folk could learn from, from your studies here. We're hoping. We're hoping. One really quick example that people might relate to that, that shows um, why a market creating solution can actually be so powerful is looking at the um, underground music streaming and music theft, basically, industry in America, right? For years, since I was in high school, everybody made mixtapes, right? That was technically illegal. There were laws against doing that. And it was, it was a great American art form creating the perfect road trip mixtape or the one for your boyfriend or memories of high school. Um, and, and it got increasingly sophisticated and increasingly um, sort of underground with technology where people could, um, you know, do elaborate ways to steal and share and tor bit torrenting and all that stuff, right? In spite of the fact that more and more money was spent on creating laws, there were campaigns by the, you know, anti-piracy campaigns by the music industry. It was clearly against the law. There were laws that, that clearly held people accountable. The music industry itself, to sort of parallel to the government, was was um, opposed to piracy and spent a lot of money on that. It was only truly when um, things like Spotify came to be where, you know what, that's just a better solution. I don't want to have to do these deep undercover, share all my files with people and who knows what parts of the world. And um, it's, it's scary and it uses a lot of space and I don't know, quality isn't very good. Spotify is just better. It's a better solution. It created a market for streaming music free or paid, depending on what you, what you want, affordable and accessible, um, that just negated all that stuff. That's when we started really obeying the copyright and privacy laws. Uh, it's just a better product. It created a market. 
That is what did it more than millions and millions of dollars spent lobbying and campaigning. I still remember people in front of Congress in the 1980s. None of that took hold. Now it took hold because we like the market we have. It's better for people. Right. And then we have some, yeah. We, and it, the, there's a stabilizing effect of these, yeah, these mass market shifts, right? That sort of plays back on the system that initially might try to resist exactly. it. Exactly. Mm. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, no, that, that, that's useful. What else? So is there anything else? Because a lot of the audience here are, you know, working businesses. Is there anything else that you've drawn from, from the work that you think can be applied within businesses? I'd just like to point out to people that, that we're talking about it from a development standpoint today, but, but part of what we're identifying is enormous growth opportunity. This is just from a pure business perspective, forget the feel good parts of having development be part of it. When you identify market creating innovation, you're creating, you're identifying new enormous markets. And so, so many businesses focus on the other types of innovation that we talk about in the book, efficiency innovation, the sustaining innovation, which move the needle a little important to business, but they, they don't create giant new pockets of growth, identifying in some, in some places where you'd see non-consumption, no consumers, it's the business environment might seem inhospitable, but if you can create a business model and a product that's affordable and accessible and, and can solve a problem for people, that is new, enormous potential growth. So it's not just to feel good. This is actually like everybody's looking for new pockets of growth. See what some other entrepreneurs and innovators have seen and see what's, what the potential is. It's really enormous. Right. And, uh, yeah, just to quickly unpack that a bit. The, so the efficiency innovations, that's about driving cost out. The yeah. sustaining is where you know you've got a set of consumers in it. How do we get more from these consumers? And then, as you say, it, it, these uh, market-creating innovations um, centered on opportunities of non-consumption is where potentially you've got huge gains, yeah. New customers, new opportunities, new revenue, revenue that you didn't count on at all before. This is a whole new pocket of growth. And, and again, once it's scaled, which is part of what we think makes it a market creating innovation, then that has enormous potential for growth. Right. Absolutely. Uh, the, other, the other concept I liked um, in the book uh, is, the, is the jobs to be done idea. Do you want to just pr briefly touch on that? Uh, Sure. I'll, I'll talk about it quickly. If you don't. Um, so the, I, the idea is that people don't go around looking just to buy a product or service because I need a hammer or um, I need a drill. They, they're actually looking to solve a struggle, something they're trying to accomplish in their life. And we call that a job to be done. What am I trying to accomplish? Um, and that job to be done actually is it has some emotional components and some social components. It's not as simple as I need a hammer or I need a drill. It is I need a hole in that wall because I want to put something up in my apartment that makes me feel like my home is a place that I come that I like coming home to and I can entertain people. It's far more complicated than just a simple, I've got to sell you this product because you need this product. You never need a product. You need to solve a struggle or what we call a job to be done. And so when you identify market opportunities through the lens of how many people can we sell phones, mobile phones to, that's a more limited way of seeing the world as opposed to how many people are struggling to stay in contact with their family who would like the ability to um, get doctors on the phone versus having to travel a day to get to someone. You identify the kind of comp the complexity of what they're trying to accomplish then you begin to see the right way to solve the problem, to create a solution or a product for that. So identifying an opportunity starts with understanding their job to be done, what they're struggling to accomplish. Yeah, and I can see how you come from that 
perspective, you're more likely to uncover pockets of non-consumption because if I come from how how who who might be the customer for this product? Right, right. I've already, in a sense, created the market in my mind. But if I come at it from what jobs need to be done by these people, uh, it's it, it's a different frame, and I might be creating a product that doesn't exist. If you look or, at the mobile telephone industry in the on the continent of Africa for years, people didn't see much hope for it at all because um, there were very few landline customers. They were very expensive. They saw a very a limited number of potential customers. Right? We, we're we're going to do the the analysis of who's buying phones now, landlines, and how many more people can we get? And the numbers would seem relatively small. If you look at the, not the customers who exist now, but the job to be done, you identify huge numbers of people for whom the solution ended up being mobile telephones, but mobile telephones that were conceived of in a different way with scratch cards and top-up minutes and free phones, because that solved an enormous job to be done for so many people. How do I stay in communication with people in my life who are physically far away? How do I have access to services and things that I can't get someone to, to help me without getting on the phone with them? It, it was... I identifying that job that was the beginning of creating what we now know is a gigantic mobile telephone market um, in Africa, throughout Africa. Right. And, and so what strikes me as well is, is that for the two of you, have either of you now, having written this book, been tempted to sort of practice what you pe- preach and get out there and try some market-creating innovations? I, I have, I'm a cheerleader. I think all I think these guys who do it are superheroes. I think it's it's fabulous and really hard and and power to them. But I'm happy to be chronicling their success from the sidelines. <laughs> yeah. So I mean, it's it, like 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 many things we learned in writing this book. It's a process. Uh, it's something that I I am looking to do in the near future. Is really. Um, develop an investment strategy to go after market creating innovations um, and support just those, not sustaining, not efficiency, but support market creating innovations. And so uh, look out in this hotline another five to 10 years. And, <laughs> and I'll be cheering you on it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I'll, I'll, get, I'll get Karen. Karen and I will write about it. <laughs> I <laughs> know, uh, but I mean, there's an enormous opportunity. What, what you know, what Karen did mention, Mo Ibrahim, who looked at the uh, cell phone landscape in Africa and didn't, you know, and saw a huge opportunity when his colleague said he was crazy, was uh, he in seven years sold his company that he created in 1998 uh, for $3.4 billion. And that market today, um, across the continent of, of, of Africa, supports close to 4 million jobs and uh, provides about 200 or so billion dollars of economic value. And so uh, market creating innovations, like Karen said, aren't just this feel good thing we should do to help people. No, no, you can really transform not just a nation, but your bank account um, and that <laughs> your investors as well. Um, and, 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 and thereafter, sustaining and efficiency innovations uh, come into the picture. It is tough, but it is possible, we think. Mm. Well, I look forward to you opening your uh, <laughs> 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 Thank you. <laughs> no, that's great. Okay, is there anything we didn't we didn't touch on that you would like to like to share? I mean, it feels like we've had a good tour of the content. Anything anything you'd like to mention? We have got to. I think we're good. Yeah, no, I think we're great. 
No, it's been a it's been a fantastic conversation. As I said, my inaugural three way conversation. No, it's, uh, <laughs> I really. <laughs> I really enjoyed it. So much, Richard. No, thank, thank you, you so much. And and I felt I now feel slightly guilty about the Christian comment. I'm sure you would have given me a lift. <laughs> oh, oh, no, never. Oh no, I look, man. I don't. Uh, I, I don't 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 even think twice about it. <laughs> he would have given you a lift, though. He would have. <laughs> I would have. I would have. Don't even think twice about it. Oh, I I think I'll be in the UK end of. Um, are you based in the UK? Yes, yes, yes. Okay, I think I'll be there end of May, sometime in the end of May. So oh, I'll drop awesome. you a line. Yeah, no, that would be fun. Uh, we'll grab some tea. Yeah. <laughs> We could have some tea. Coffee. <laughs> no, no, we could have some tea. In fact, I know some people at uh, Lloyd's of London. Maybe I could get you a tour there if you're interested. I know that was in the book, right? So. Yeah, that'd be nice. Cool. Okay. Well, thank you so much for your time. Enjoy the rest of your your day. Uh, and um, yeah. Well, um, in terms of in terms of people who want to read the book, I'm just going to put it up for those on screen. The Prosperity Paradox. Uh, it's out. There's a. Is, it, is there anything other than the book? Any other places you'd point people to who want to learn more about this? Yeah, I mean, uh, the Christensen Institute is uh, the website. Uh, you know, I work for the Christensen Institute uh, for disruptive innovation, and we post a lot of uh, blogs, or articles, and things uh, on that site. So, the Christensen Institute, great. All right. Thanks again, and uh, Thank you. Yeah. enjoy the rest of your day. Cheers. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye. The Being Human podcast was brought to you by First Human. For more on First Human's human-focused coaching and leadership programs, head to firsthuman.com.